0: Good afternoon. Good, afternoon. Good afternoon, I just realized that that our, that clock is at least four minutes faster than the real time. Um, would you rise with me as we read from our passage, it's uh, going to be from the book of uh, the Epistle of Paul to the Colossians, chapter 1, verses 3 to 20, we'll focus on verses 9 to 14, but uh, it is important for us to read the entire passage, Colossians chapter 1, verses 3 through 20. We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you As indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you. Since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things. And in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Let's pray. Our Father God, we want to thank you, Lord, for this time, for uh, giving us the opportunity to once again come into your presence and to worship you and to praise you, and now to uh, to to be prostrate before your word as we listen to what you have to say to us today. We thank you, Lord, that your word is so. Uh, enlightening and also practical, that it helps us to live our daily lives in a manner that's pleasing to you. We pray that your spirit will guide us and guide us in Jesus' name. We ask, Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> um, so I was away for uh, a couple of weeks, and um, and you would have undoubtedly already heard, uh, I believe, one or two sermons on this topic, which is focusing on the prayers from Paul's epistles. And we know, you know, prayer is a very common thing, right? Everyone, especially Christians, pray. You know, there's a saying that uh, there are no atheists in foxholes. Have you heard that? Basically, you know, the idea is that oh, when it comes down to your last moments, you're, like a foxhole is this trench in a war. So if there's a soldier in there and he's about to die, the idea is that even the most hardened atheist usually sends out a prayer. So prayer is common, but prayer is not commonly understood. What do we pray and why do we pray? That's a, that's a topic that many of us have difficulty uh, understanding and handling. Uh, for example, what we pray, actually most of us pray in patterns that are modeled after those we have seen or heard praying uh, from the earliest days in the faith, whether that's in the family or in the church, right? So we pray like other people pray. The question of why, though, this is more difficult to answer, but I wouldn't be wrong to say that most of us pray primarily as petitioners. That is, we ask God to do something for us. See, that in itself is not wrong, but often it is what we ask for where we fall short. We ask for gifts and blessings that are, that are temporary over the gifts and blessings that last into eternity. Secondly, we, we neglect other aspects of prayer. See, prayer is communication with God. So, so that means prayer also involves things like confession and thanksgiving. And, that, and those aspects of prayer is often missing from our prayer life. So we, we have a wrong perspective on prayer. The question of why. And that wrong perspective is, is very evident when you consider you know, the concept of of prayer warrior. Have you heard of that? Prayer warriors, um, you know, or prayer ministries. Uh, again, you know, as a speaker, one of the things about speaking is that you can't speak on everything that's possible, right? You can only speak on a certain subset of the things that, that are related to a topic. So I want to be careful uh, in, in in approaching this and saying that there are many um, you know, angles and nuances to this, but, but the whole idea of, of prayer warriors and prayer ministries shows that we are usually more invested in getting results out of prayer than anything else. So we turn to, to quantity and proven people rather than just us chancing it alone. So there's, a, there's a, a lot of biblical truth in why we should get our requests out for corporate prayers. But that is not fully expressed in our ministries today. And that, like I said, is probably a topic uh, we can address another day. But the real question is, does prayer really work? Now, wouldn't we all like to know if prayer works? Right? Like C.S. Lewis uh, a long time ago said that, oh, there's really no way in which uh, you, can, you can test if prayer works. Because if you tell someone that, um, oh, we are, we, are, we are testing if your prayer is working that usually means that they're not going to pray in the right spirit. But in, in the early 2000s, and this is a study that came out in 2006, um, Harvard Medical School actually conducted a study. They spent 10 years, $2.5 million, on a study called STEP. It's the study of the therapeutic effects of intercessory prayer. Now, this is a very scientific study that, um, you know, that took 1,800 patients, all admitted for coronary artery bypass graft surgery. So it's from the name. It's a very complicated procedure, I guess. And, and these 1,800 patients were divided into three groups. Two of the groups received prayer from committed church-going Christians who had experience praying for the sick. Out of the two groups, only one of the groups knew that they were actually being prayed for. So there are three groups, one who are not being prayed for, one, uh, two who are prayed for, out of the two, one of them knew that they were being prayed for, and the other one did not know they were being prayed for, but they were being prayed for. And the result was that the group that, whose members knew they were being prayed for did worse in terms of complications than those who were unsure if they were receiving prayer. Supposedly, the knowledge that you are being prayed for seemed to have a negative effect on their health. Maybe it's some kind of performance anxiety, right? Like, um, now, the two, groups, the two other groups, one who received prayer but were not sure of it, uh, and the other who are not being prayed at all, they were also evaluated. And, and what happened was that there was no difference, right? Like, like both of them... Experience the same level of, uh, the average level of complications and, and problems as the other group. And, um, you know, one way to think of that is, well, you cannot really test prayer in a particular way. But the other way to think about it, really, is that they wasted a lot of money testing something that's actually there um, in the Bible. So if you turn to uh, Matthew chapter 5, and verse 45, this is what Jesus says about God the Father. He says, Matthew chapter 5 and verse 45 says that you are sons of the Father who is in heaven. He makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. So it's biblical that God sends blessings on both the just and the unjust. So that's a biblical idea. So they spend two and a half million dollars essentially to tell us the same thing, that yes, if you treat prayer like magic, there's not going to be any difference between the people who are being prayed for and the people who are not being prayed for. So you see, focusing on prayer merely as a vehicle for blessing is not the most productive use of prayer. So we look to Scripture to understand what and how and why to pray, right? And how many of us have heard the question, well, if God has already promised me all the blessings that I need, and, and he's already given me eternal life. Why do I need to pray? Like, I've heard that question a lot of times. So then we need to look to Scripture to understand why we need to pray. And Jesus himself had much to say about prayer. As we know, the Lord's Prayer is, is, the, is the primary model, the consummate model of prayer that we find in Scripture. But when we look to Paul, we find that model, the model of the Lord's Prayer, expounded in detail and depth both in the teachings of Paul and in the many examples of actual prayers that Paul has put in his epistles. See, Paul was an apostle whose ministry was grounded and developed from prayer. That's why we see so many prayers in the epistles of Paul. Uh, this is why a commentator says, for Paul, the Christian experience was essentially and unceasingly an act of prayer. Um, the the Puritan theologian John Owen has said that a minister may fill his pews, that is, a minister may have a, a, a big church with a lot of attendants, but what that minister is on his knees in secret before God Almighty, that he is and no more. The sum total of a leader's ministry can be found in his relationship with God that is expressed through prayer. And that was what, Paul demonstrates that he was not defined by his success or failure in attracting people to his to the gospel through his ministry, but rather in his relationship with God, which was modeled in a lifestyle of unceasing prayer. So our goal as we study the prayers of Paul is not to focus on the content in itself, though that is important, but primarily to look at Paul's pattern and perspective on prayers. The pattern is the question of what, it answers the question of what, and the perspective is the question of why. And, and in this passage, um, we, have, we have studied the book of Colossians. The context of Colossians is that uh, the, the church in, 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 in Colossi was battling an outburst of false teaching, and these false teachers promised some kind of spiritual fullness to, to Christians. What they said was the teaching that these Christians had received, the gospel that they had received through the ministry of this person called Epaphras, uh, whose name we read, that was just elementary. That was just, uh, that was just uh, you know, like level one, right? Like kindergarten stuff. And and they had secret knowledge that was needed to get the full truth and and getting spiritual maturity and attaining what they called uh, spiritual fullness. And this fullness, as they call it, had another way of entry apart from the saving grace of God. And it had a program of like works and rules that you had to follow. So it is kind of like the old uh, Jewish uh, rituals almost. But So that is the false teaching that they are battling, these people who claim to have secret knowledge. And against this, Paul wants to assure them that Epaphras had taught them the word of truth, which is what we read in verse 5, which is the gospel. He wishes to remind them that the fullness of all knowledge had already been given to them. What they needed was an ongoing effort in in their walk with God to grow in their faith and understand the knowledge which was already theirs. Not something that was secret or new. Rather, understand what you already have. That's Paul's message. And he wishes also to remind them that, that the outcome of the true knowledge of God is reflected in your life as opposed to the speculation of false teaching, which is all theoretical, right? That's why we have, like, blood moons and, and num- numerology and things. Like, what, what effect does that have on a person's life other than being, uh, you know, immensely interested in a topic? Whereas true Christian knowledge leads to transformation in your life and lifestyle. So Paul's prayer in this passage is a model for what should be the desire and yearning of every believer in that church, and thereby, every Christian as to how to proceed in their walk with God in their their Christian life, it's a model for how to live as a Christian, how to grow as a Christian, and how to increase in our enjoyment of God himself. And if you look at his prayer in verses 9 to 14, which is our focus, this is how we can briefly uh, outline it. So in, in, the, in verse 9, we see the context of Paul's prayer, or the, the environment in which all Christian prayer is to be made. The context of Paul's prayer. Then in, in the following verses, we see the content of Paul's prayer. You know, What are the things we pray for? And why do we pray for that? And finally, we'll see the culmination or the, or the, or the effect, the conclusion of Paul's prayer, the result of proper prayer. So that's, that's a brief outline. So what's the context in which Christians are supposed to pray? Let's read Colossians chapter 1 and verse 9. It says, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So here Paul begins by saying that the Colossian church and its members have been prayed for by him and by his ministry partners, his companions, ever since Epaphras brought them the news of the conversion of the Colossian believers. And and in this one verse, we can actually focus on three aspects of Paul's prayer life. Uh, Firstly, the most obvious one, he prays without ceasing. Paul led a life of prayer. He didn't just pray when the circumstances demanded it, but he says, I, we have not ceased to pray for you. He prayed continually for all things, including the Colossians. And, and you think about it, he has only heard of the Colossians, but he has not seen them, and yet they were still in his constant prayer. See, so that's a good example uh, for, for us to follow as well. Like Many times we hear of something, but we have not seen it, and we might pray for something once and then forget about it. But Paul was not like that. He prayed uh, ceaselessly for the matters on his mind, including uh, people that he had only heard of and not met. Secondly, he links the prayer in verse 9, the prayer of petition, to the thanksgiving which we read in verses 3 to 8. Right? That's why verse 9 begins with, And so, right? So a majority of Paul's prayers in, 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 in the epistles are of two forms. They are either thanksgiving or petitions. But if you notice, for him, all of the petition flows from thanksgiving to God. So the, the way Paul prays is that the thanksgiving comes first and the petition flows from that. And it's not only that, there's also a lot of similarities between the prayer of thanksgiving and what he actually asks God for. So if you go home and read uh, you know, the, the first prayer from verse three to eight, and then you read from nine to 14, you will see um, the same phrases and words being repeated over and over. So for example, in verse six, he says, since the day you heard. Then verse nine, he says, since the day we heard. So uh, you know, uh, in verse six, he says, bearing fruit and growing. In verse 10, he says, bearing fruit and growing. Uh, in verse 3, he says, when we pray for you. In verse 9, he again says, praying for you. What is the effect of the similarities? It's not just, uh, you know, like Paul was like, oh, wow, I'm, I'm going to write this down like this so that 2,000 years from now, some preacher is going to stand up and say, did you notice all the similarities? No, it's not because of that. It's to remind the Colossians that you have to continue on the path that you have started when you receive the gospel. See, prayer verses 3 to uh, 8 talks about his hope for the work of the gospel. Verses 9 to 14 is his prayer for the Colossians. Now, the Colossians are the ones who have already received the gospel. But what Paul is praying for is more of the same. You know, a commentator says that uh, the apostle's supreme concern throughout this letter is that all growth and development our spiritual life should be wholly consistent with its beginnings. The growth that we experience as a Christian should be consistent with the way in which we became a Christian. What do we mean by that? If someone comes to you and says, oh, it's all right, you're saved You know, 10, 15 years ago, but you didn't receive everything that you're supposed to receive, either... You know, we have the boldness to say, you're a false teacher, because that's not true. The, the, the perception of the gospel is the only thing that saves me. Or we have to be intellectually honest and say, well, then, I was not saved 10 years ago. So what I'm saying? If anyone promises something beyond the gospel that saved you, then either they are a false t- teacher, or you are not saved. The false teachers promise a new path, a new awakening, that somehow these believers had missed out. And Paul is dissuading them of that notion by reminding them that all the fullness of God in Christ is already presented them. That's why he prays that you may be filled. And then if you go to Colossians chapter 3, he says, you have all the fullness of God in Christ already within you. And and all the knowledge of God in Christ has already been revealed to them. And what they needed to do was to continue on their Christian walk. You have to grow in a manner that's consistent with the way you became saved. You see, falling away, as we call it, what is falling away? It's a failure essentially to continue. That's why we call it falling away. If you continue, you don't fall away. And the sadness of all of these false teaching, all of these movements that promise new knowledge or or secret knowledge is that they lead people away from true knowledge. And that's what we see in Christianity all the time. That people who go chasing after so-called secrets and mysteries often end up walking away from their faith completely. And another thing to note from the similarities, like we said, is that Paul thanks God for his blessings, and then he asks for more of the same. The thanksgiving for God's grace extends to a petition for more of that same grace to be available in our lives. See, Paul's common practice is to pray for ongoing concerns, not for extraordinary situations. Okay. That means he prayed for the same things over and over. He would thank God, God, thank you for giving me these things, but I, want, I pray for more of that. That is his practice, his practice is to pray for the ongoing concerns of the Christian life, which are rooted in our walk with God and not necessarily just for extraordinary situations so lastly, from this words, he prays that they may be filled with the knowledge of god 's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding see that 's a primary purpose of this prayer. Everything else is needed for the accomplishment of this purpose, so he says. I want you to be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So then we have to ask ourselves, what is meant by the knowledge of God's will? You see here, he doesn't say the knowledge of God's will for this situation. He doesn't say the knowledge of God's will for the circumstance that you're facing in the church. He says that the knowledge of God's will, period. And that knowledge of God's will is instrumental for the ongoing Christian life of the Colossian believers. So we ask ourselves, what is God's will? When we talk of God's will, usually, what do we talk for? What is God's will for me now that I want to marry, right? Or look for a job or hunt for a house. Basically, what we think of God's will is entirely situational or vocational. Essentially, it's like, God, I have these choices. What is your will? Like, Choose for me, right? I was, uh, we listened to a lot of uh, this radio station on Sirius XM, Uh, it's called The Message, I don't know if you've heard of it. Uh, They have the obvious, like all radio stations run ads, which basically praise themselves, right? Like, so this Christian radio station, they had an ad, uh, just quite interesting, Um, you know, it's this woman who called in to say, well, you know, me and my husband were hunting for a house, and 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 we didn't really know what to pick and what to choose, so uh, you know we we would pray and then we heard songs that seemed to confirm what God was saying to us, and so we thank you, I was like, that's amazing. I need to hear that song like it's it's is that the song which goes, "I raise my white flag, there's a song like that like um I mean not to pick on some anonymous lady, but um that's what we think, right we think that God's will is a situational thing that helps us to choose what sometimes we already want to choose. And so we are looking for signs to say, it's okay, you can choose that house. But the Bible and Paul talks of knowing God's will in a different sense. When you read the Bible and you look at God's will, it's not a particular direction or a special direction as much as it is a a deep understanding of the revelation of God especially specifically in Jesus Christ that has already been given to us and the impact that knowing God has on has on our ongoing life including in the choices we make so it's not a particular specific direction as much as it is a deeper knowledge of God's revelation that we already have so for example you look in the old testament in psalm 143 and verse 10 it says Teach me to do Your will, for You are my God. Let Your good Spirit lead me on level ground. Teach me to do Your will, for You are my God. See here, the psalmist presumes that the will of God is already known to him. He doesn't say, "Teach me Your will." It says, "Teach me to do Your will." So, what is he praying for? He's not praying to to to, to know God's will. He's saying, "Pray." He's praying to God for God's help in obeying God's will. Teach me to do is not to know, but to obey. And when we look at Paul's writings, we see that he also assumes that God's will is known. And what is needed is is discernment and understanding and obedience to that will, not discovery. A few examples. So in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15 to 17, it says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of time, because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. What is the will of the Lord? Do not walk unwisely in evil. First Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. What is the will of God? That you live a sanctified life, progressing in holiness. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 16 to 18, it says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. What is the will of God? Rejoice always, give thanks in every circumstance. So what can we say about the will of God? Or or how can we say that we do not know what God's will is when it is already revealed to us in the pages of Scripture? And that's a big difference between the the false teaching that these believers were facing and the teaching of Paul. Because for the false teachers, all knowledge of God was was speculation and theoretical. But for Paul, the knowledge of God, the knowledge of God's will was available. It was comprehensive. But the thing is, it demanded obedience. See, being filled with the knowledge of God's will can only come about... um, can only come about with an ongoing engagement with the revelation of God, which is God's revealed word, right? It is shameful if we constantly are unsure of God's will for us when our Bibles are left hidden in in, in the desk or in the closet. And it's even sadder when we see God's leading on vocation when we have not shown ourselves to be obedient to the will of God that we already know. The truth is a lot of us don't pray because we know we are not obedient to God's will. Therefore, we feel like imposters when we come into his presence. Because we know we are not obedient to God's will, we don't have the courage to go into his presence and ask him. So God's will is available, it is comprehensive, but it demands obedience. And what we need, actually, is, as we read in this verse, all spiritual wisdom and understanding in order for us to obey, to do God's will. And where have we read that uh, before? We have actually, um, you know, if you read the Old Testament, in First Chronicles chapter 22 and verse 12, this is the prayer of Solomon. Solomon prays, only may the Lord, or, uh, or this is a prayer for Solomon, may the Lord grant you discretion and understanding that when he gives you charge over Israel, you may keep the law of the Lord your God. It's the same thing. Wisdom and understanding. For what? So that when you take charge, you may obey. The law of your God that has already been given to you so we need spiritual wisdom and understanding or to put it simply our, our prayer is for the Holy Spirit to work in us to bring wisdom and discernment and understanding to apply the revealed will of God in our changing life circumstances so we often pray for the for the basic elemental knowledge of God's will which God has already revealed to us what we need to pray for is discernment to apply this will into our specific situations as Paul was praying for the Colossians, right? So if I were to pray, God, I don't know, what, how am I going to deal with this annoying neighbor? He'll "Well, he say, well, he'll say, well uh, you know, with, with thanksgiving and joy, you know, right? Like, like, how do I deal with this, with this uh, situation at work? With thanksgiving and joy. How do I deal with, with, with this problem in my family? With thanksgiving and joy. That's a very boring prayer life if you keep asking for that. So what do you ask for? You said, God, how do I... Be thankful and joyful in the situation that currently faces me. That is how we ask for spiritual wisdom and understanding, in applying the will of God into our specific life circumstances. So, Paul's prayers are grounded in an ongoing Christian walk that seeks to apply God's revelation, His revealed will, in everyday life. And it presumes that we are already obedient to the will of God. So let's look at the content of, uh, of Paul's prayer here in verses 10 to 12 of uh, Colossians chapter 1. He says, uh, So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. So what is, what is the content of Paul's prayer? It is, it is first of all, is to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord and in a manner that is fully pleasing to him. Now, to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, that is to, to, to walk in a manner that brings glory to God, is to be pleasing to God. So it's, it's correct to say that in essence these are both the same things. Right? If you walk in a manner that glorifies God, you walk in a manner that's pleasing to God. But we can, we can argue that there's a slight uh, nuance here, which is that when you walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, and you have to think of this uh, in a culture which is similar to, to a lot of Eastern cultures, it's like a shame and honor-based culture, to walk in a manner that does not bring shame to God, but rather brings honor to God, It's an external validation of your life. Like others look at your life and say, you're walking in a manner worthy of the Lord. So they won't cast aspersions or shame on the God we profess to serve, but rather they get a sense of his glory through our walk. Now to live a life that is pleasing to God alone can be an internal counterbalance to our innate human need to always seek affirmation from other people. Basically, people-pleasing. Right. too often we, we live to please others and gain the approval of others instead of God now in our self-centered culture many of us don't actually live to please anyone other than ourselves right so it's like often the case like when we think oh I don't when I say well I, I don't live my life to please any anyone else the truth is I'm living my life to please myself and that in itself is not necessarily pleasing to God so Paul's writing here serves to remind us that our walk is to be a visible testimony to God's grace and glory in our lives and one that is focused exclusively on obtaining his pleasure rather than your pleasure and my pleasure. Live a life that's worthy of God and pleasing to him alone. And Paul lays out four uh, aspects or components um, which he feels is relevant to his particular concerns here of such a life. That is pleasing to God. For uh, the first one, such a life bears fruit by showing good works. Now, this is a topic that we have covered in some depth. So, you know, we, we focus on the importance of displaying the fruits of salvation through good works. We all know we are, not, we are saved by grace alone, but true saving faith is accompanied by good works. It's important for us to remember to obey God's will, to, to, to show forth good works in our life. But to uh, attempt to produce good works without a lifestyle of prayer that backs it is a recipe for failure. So like Paul, we are to seek God's help even in the bearing of fruits for his glory. So such a life produces abundant good fruit. Secondly, such a life continually increases in the knowledge of God. Okay, this is an interesting aspect of this prayer. See, Paul began by saying in verse 9 that his desire was for The Colossians to be filled with the knowledge of God's will. But he says now that one of the results of being filled with the knowledge of God's will is to increase in the knowledge of God. And that is circular. Right? Like, you need the knowledge of God, that is God's will, to increase in the knowledge of God. So what does that mean? First off, what it's saying is that there's an aspect in which our knowledge of God only increases when we obey the will of God that's already revealed to us. That means it, the barrier to increasing in the knowledge of God is not an intellectual barrier. Right? It's not a lack of intellect, but it's a moral barrier. There, there is a moral barrier to increasing the knowledge of God, not an intellectual one. This is what F.F. F. Bruce says. says, Obedience to the knowledge of God which has already been received is a necessary and certain condition for the reception of further knowledge. See, without obeying God in what has already been revealed to us, we cannot hope to know him better. And such knowledge of God, you know, to increase the knowledge of God, is not extra revelation, right? God is not going to reveal something new about himself that no other Christian has ever known. But what it is, is an uncovering of his glory and character in a manner that is experiential, and that is effective. To increase in the knowledge of God is to know more of God himself in an experiential manner. It's a question of morals, not of intellect. So you can study the Bible all that you want, but if it's not backed by obedience to the revealed will of God as we already understand it, we are not going to increase in our experience of knowing God. Put simply, we cannot live a life that's pleasing to God without obeying Him. But as we obey Him, we get to know more of Him. And such knowledge drives us to more obedience and so on. There's no exhausting of our potential to know more of God in our lives as we obey Him. Because God is so grand and glorious, He's so limitless. But He has promised us that when we obey Him, He makes it possible to know more of Himself. You know, you have heard of uh, prayer circles? You know, there's a book called The Circle Maker, and if you heard of this, it told you to like draw circle, pray, cir- draw circles around your house, around your family, and around your land, and then pray and all that. It's, it's all crazy nonsense, right? Like, here's a circle that actually works. That as you pray to be filled with the knowledge of God's will, which you obey, God then fills us with more knowledge of Himself. In God's grace, as we are obedient to His will, He gives us more of Himself, which makes us want to obey Him more, thereby to know more of Him, and on and on and on. And that's a glorious promise in the Scriptures that sadly many of us do not realize and do not take up God on. That obedience is a precondition to increasing in the knowledge of God Himself. Thirdly, such a life endures every adverse situation and demonstrates patience in hardship without losing the joy that is the possession of every Christian. You see, in Paul's writings, the notion of God's power is most aptly demonstrated in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So if you read a lot of verses in Paul, it says the power of God is demonstrated in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And all of that power is demonstrated in believer's life to what end? not to work miracles or healing or, or anything like that, but to strengthen us to face life's problems with endurance and to increase our patience so that we do not lose the joy that we have in Jesus Christ. It is the will of God to rejoice always, but that does not mean that we have to rely on the strength of our character or our personality or that we have to fight our inherent you know, personalities to show fake joy. So God promises that all of the resurrection power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead, is available to us to face life situation joyfully with patience and endurance. And and we are to seek that power and strengthening in prayer. Lastly, um, such a life is filled with thankfulness to God. And again, this is what F.F. Bruce says about it. He says, in Christianity, it has been well said, theology is grace and ethics is gratitude. Theology is grace and ethics is gratitude. What does that mean? It means all of the things that you study of God points to the ultimate conclusion that God is a gracious God and the gospel is God's ultimate expression of grace. Therefore, the ethics of our life, which is a response to that revelation, is one of gratitude. Everything that we do is bound up in this idea that we are to be thankful to God for the grace that he has given us. See, thankfulness demonstrates our recognition that salvation is a gift that is not driven by our merit, but solely by his grace. Like, how many of you thank your bosses for last year's bonus throughout this year? You said thanks once, right? Because you knew... That's right, I deserve that. But when you don't deserve it, you show a pattern of continuing thankfulness because that reflects the fact that we are aware that this is not on our merit, but this is the grace of God. And that thankfulness is not to be confined to our initial Christian experience, but it is fundamental to our ongoing Christian lifestyle. And that might seem difficult in certain situations of life. That is why we pray for God's strength to help us continue in gratitude, in thankfulness. And we look at the gospel here in verse uh, 13 to 14. It says, this is what he's thankful for. He says, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. You see, The gospel, he describes it in verse 12 as our inheritance as a sharing of an inheritance that belongs to the holy saints of God, to the people of God of whom we were not a part of. It's an inheritance that we had no right to partake of. But we share in that inheritance by God's grace. How? Because he has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and has transferred us to the kingdom of Jesus Christ, who through his death on the cross of Calvary has redeemed us by bearing our sins and purchasing our forgiveness. If you turn to Luke chapter 22, verse 52 to 53, it says, Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temples and elders who had come out against him, this is, this is in the garden, having come out as, a ro- as against a robber with swords and clubs, when I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this is your hour and the dominion of darkness." See, to transfer us from the power, the dominion of darkness, into the light, the Son of God, who resides in eternal light, went in to the dominion of darkness to purchase us. That's what when Paul thinks he cannot help but be thankful on an ongoing basis, continually reflecting on that grace of God that has bestowed upon us an eternal inheritance that we have no right to but that is now ours in Christ Jesus. That is what keeps him, and that is what will keep us thankful to God always. Now let's look at the culmination, the conclusion of Paul's prayer. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 to 20 is the most famous passage in the book of Colossians. But we often read it just by itself, but we ask, we had to ask ourselves the question, why does Paul place it here at the conclusion of his prayer that we have just read? So if you read Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 to 20, it says, And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on heaven, whether on earth, or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. See, you see, there is a hint of an of what we call an, an apologetic aspect to it. See, the Colossians who were in danger of falling prey to false teaching, they needed to be reminded who was the true head of the church, the true preeminent one in the universe, the true source of all fullness. That is Jesus Christ. But we cannot lose the strand that connects this. Praise to the prayer that came before. He in whom we have redemption, which is verse 14, is the image of the invisible God. See, Paul has thanked, has prayed for the Colossians to obey the will of God, to live a life pleasing to him, and to be thankful for the redemption that is theirs. But before he moves on to more of what, you know, that means for them, he cannot help but pause for a moment to burst out in praise to his and their Savior. And what you realize is that what Paul prayed for the Colossians is what he prayed for himself. And in that, in that virtuous circle of unceasing prayer, whereby he obeys the will of God to know more about God, he has learned more and more about a savior. And the joy that he calls forth in his listeners is what is bursting out from within himself. See, so read this prayer. It's very complicated, isn't it? It's complex. Uh, you know, like people rise up on Sundays and pick up one aspect of it. You know, it's the image, it's the imprint, it's like a stamp. It's complex. It's complicated, but it's written by a person. If you find it difficult to pray the right way, you, we will find it difficult to praise Him the right way too. What this prayer reminds us is is that a life. Devoted to knowing God and obeying Him, which is what is worship. Worship, you know, as the popular slogan goes, which is true, worship is a lifestyle. That worship culminates in audible praise because praise is, as a theologian has said, the inevitable heritage of those who dwell on the countless blessings they have received from God through the merits of Jesus Christ. And the sad thing is, we look at a passage like this and we say that's very complicated. That's very complex. I cannot understand God. That is true. God is complex because He is not man. The question is: do you do we have the desire to know this Christ, the firstborn of all creation, to know him in all the complexity and supremacy that is echoed in these verses? Then What Paul is saying is to be filled with the knowledge of God's will and obey it and pray for more of that has already been bestowed upon us so that we can know more and more of Him. And the more we know of Him, the more we gain an intimacy that allows us to understand and reflect upon the majesty of our Savior and to express it in words clearly and audibly so that people who look at us can say, well, how did you gain all that knowledge? How do you understand all this complexity about the character of God? Or are we satisfied, as many in our times are, to bring down, God down to our level so that we can understand him better? You know, to, to visualize him as, as, as uncle or papa and mama and, and all of that thing, because how much we miss out on the true glory of the Godhead. You know, uh, Thomas Watson, um, once he's, he's also, obviously he's a theologian, He's right? another theologian. He said once, to compare other things with God is to debase deity, is to is to, be sh- is to shame deity as if you should compare the shining of a glow worm with the sun. If we cannot understand God without bringing God to our level, what he's saying is that it's as if we are comparing the sun through the shining of a glow worm. See, perhaps our inability to understand God as he is, is not a failure of comprehension or intellect. Think about it. We are people who can understand complicated financial instruments called mortgages that have a 30-year resting period but has to be renewed in five years. That is a fixed rate or a variable rate. All of that stuff. But we say we cannot understand God as he's described in the Bible. That inability to understand God is not a failure of comprehension. Because people, in centuries past, have understood God in a better way than we have, without all of the learning that we have that 's not a failure of intellect; it is a failure of desire. We do not want to know him more, and without the desire, we do not spend time in His real word, or we do not, or the time we spend in the Word of God is not backed by a life of ceaseless prayer that seeks more and more intimacy, and knowledge of God. When and how do we come into God's presence to pray? Do we come as the situation demands it, or are we afraid to come into his presence because we know that we are not obedient to his will, that we have a Christian identity on the outside that is not matched by our heart on the inside? The question is, are we prepared to pray like Paul, a ceaseless prayer that moves from thanksgiving for God's eternal blessings, to asking Him for more of the same so that we can continue to grow as Christians, to obey the will of God that we already know so that we can live a life pleasing to Him, to obey Him so that we can know more and more of Him, so that our lifestyle of worship erupts in a crescendo of praise to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. How could we remain silent if our life is a life like that of Paul. Thanking God, asking Him, fill me with more of what you have already given me so that I can grow more and more in love with you. Let us pray. Father God, we want to thank you, Lord, for your word that reveals to us so much complex truth about you a lot. But at the same time, a lot, you, you have promised us that, that we are not left adrift of true knowledge, that all of the fullness. Um, of, of your knowledge has already been given to us in the gospel of our son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And what we need a Lord, is not to seek after every new thing that comes in our way, but rather a lot to, to be thankful and to focus on what we already have, to obedient to the things that we already know so that we can uh, live a life that's pleasing to you and at the same time grow more and more in intimacy with you. It's your promise O Lord, that as we obey you, that you'll give us more of yourself. And we thank you, Lord, that we have the opportunity in this land to live as witnesses to the glory and grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And we pray, Allah, that our prayer will be driven by our recognition uh, that we have to live a life that is worthy of your calling. And also at the same time, Allah, that we have to live a life that is continually growing in its intimacy with you. And we pray, Allah, that that will be our aim and our, and our goal as we step out into the world and into the week beyond. Thank you, Lord, for all your grace and blessings upon us. In the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.